0: I don't know if many of you have done much traveling. I know some of you have. I know some of you have traveled internationally and some of you have not. But can you imagine if you have traveled internationally the fear that would grip you if you got to the airport and your flight left in an hour and you realize that you forgot your passport? we've traveled internationally and i don't know i think that the most anxiety i had on the international trips that i've been on has been where's my passport it's 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 scary to think about that and i remember there was a there was a time especially when you know you can keep your passport on you but that's not always good because if you get mugged they can take your passport you can leave your passport in your hotel room but people come in your hotel room to clean your room. They can take your passport. You can put it in the safe, but when you're traveling internationally, there's places you go where, like in the Ivory Coast, we, we had to like show our passport to get into certain places, like that, uh, that big cathedral thing we went to. You remember that? Nate, where are you? Where do you go, Dave? You remember that? I mean, there's... So, I never felt comfortable, and I... I I remember especially the Ivory Coast was something, but going to Europe too, I remember thinking, you know, the Ivory Coast, if I don't have my passport, I'm not getting out of this country. Like I'm stuck here. Like I don't even know what the word for bathroom is in French. Like I'm in trouble if I don't have my passport. I'm in big trouble. And I remember in Europe there was a time where just because of the way hotels worked and transfers worked, and we didn't know what we were doing exactly. And there was a moment when and I'll tell you the whole story another time, but there's a moment when we had to leave all of our luggage at an Indian cuisine restaurant in the middle of downtown Paris. There was a moment where for half a day, all of our luggage, everything, was in the front window of an Indian cuisine restaurant for half a day. It's a great story. I'd love to tell it to you. But... I I was so nervous. I was so nervous. And like, where's the passport? Where's the passport? My wife just about wanted to kill me. She still even now is giving me the the look you gave me then because I'm bringing this up in your mind. And you were just like, why don't you just chill out? I was freaking out because I didn't want to get stuck in Paris. Paris is not a place you want to be stuck in either. I think it's as bad as the Ivory Coast, probably worse. I don't recommend Paris. I want you to think about that feeling of when you need that one document and imagine going to search for that document at the airport and realizing you forgot it at home. The plane that you, the, the airline ticket that you just spent thousands of dollars on and you, you can't. Use it. You're going to forfeit it. Imagine that feeling. That's the feeling. That's the idea that I want you to be thinking of as we talk about our passage of Luke today. Well, our study of the Gospel of Luke has brought us face to face with the words of Jesus. And for the last two weeks, especially, we've listened to Jesus talk to us about what it means to be one of his disciples, especially regarding generosity. Disciples of Jesus Christ should be generous people. We should be outrageously generous. And we're not supposed to worry about being generous because we know that when we are generous, we know that God himself will provide for us. This is what we've learned the last two weeks. We're supposed to be rich toward God, and we are to remember that where our treasure is, is where our heart will be also. (laughs) You know, I wish that all Jesus' words were as straightforward as what we've learned for the last two weeks. Our passage today is not quite as clear-cut, and because of that, we especially need to pray today before we go into Scripture. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we open up your word once again today, as we open it up together, it is with an expectation that you are going to meet with us and you are going to help us understand. Because God, we recognize in this moment, we do not have enough to be able to understand your word. Not by ourselves. We're not smart enough. But more than being smart, Lord, it's not just about knowledge. Holy Spirit, we need you to inspire not only the writing of your word, but now the interpretation of your word. We invite you here, Holy Spirit, to do exactly that. Amen. Well, as we look at Luke today, please turn to Luke chapter 12 if you have your Bible. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 48 today, but I want to remind you of the words at the beginning of chapter 12 because. These two verses, verses 4 and 5, they set the stage for the entire chapter, which includes all the stuff about generosity we've learned the last two weeks, but it also sets the stage for what we're going to look at today. So Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, it'll be on the screen. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. These two verses set the stage for all of the talk about generosity that Jesus has been saying to us in chapter 12. But these verses also set the stage for our discussion today. It was this startling statement that Jesus began all of this discussion about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so now, verses 35 through 48. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. So that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not Let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men's servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That servant... Who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Oh... Yes, crying is the right response. This is a difficult passage for many reasons. Of course, the overall message of this section is really straightforward. Uh, the, The general message is not tricky. Disciples of Jesus are to be ready. That that part's easy. So we are supposed to be ready. It's easy to understand, I should say, not necessarily easy to live out. But Jesus is saying, as a disciple of Jesus, you need to be ready. So we can sum up most of chapter 12 this way. Be generous and be ready. There you go. That's all of chapter 12, summed up in about four words. Disciples of Jesus are to be constantly ready for Jesus' return. But after this general and straightforward understanding, things do get a bit more difficult. Now, just to let you know, this is one of those passages of Scripture that I would probably never preach a sermon on. This is one of those passages of Scripture that um, I would would probably reference in another sermon, but I would not normally preach a sermon on this. You know why? Because it's hard. I'm being honest with you. This is way difficult stuff. And as we get into this a little bit, I I don't know if I'm going to lose you. I don't know if I'm going to lose myself. I I hope I don't lose my soul. I don't think I will. But this is difficult. So it's going to require, this is one of those sermons where you're going to have to like keep your thinking hat on. So right now I've got like cold Minnesota air blowing on me from this fan because it's like negative 20 outside. So, that's probably good for me. I hope you don't fall asleep. Maybe you need to, I don't know, do something. Hmm. I just want to warn you that this is going to be one of those messages where everything does not come into crystal clear focus. You might be left with more questions than answers at the end. You have been warned. So, The one thing I can say is it's helpful as I go through all of this stuff. It's helpful to remind yourself that the the point of all of this that Jesus has said is really simple. Be ready. So as we look at the complex things, remember the point is be ready. All right. Here is the first difficulty. There are many Christians that believe that Jesus is telling us to be ready for the time when he comes again. So in this section, is that what Jesus is talking about? Many Christians think that that's what it is. Now, there's a fancy word for this. I've taught you this before, but I want to remind you. A fancy church word for the the second coming of Christ. Does anybody remember that fancy church word? Anybody? What? Eschatology is the study of the end times, but that's not quite the word I'm looking for. But that is a good Greek word, part of the eschaton, the end time. That's what eschaton means in Greek. But the word I'm looking for is the, the word that's talking about the second coming of Christ. That fancy word is rapture. Not quite, but I can see where you got it. Rapture is a good idea. That's the idea of a lifting up. But the coming of Christ himself, not the lifting up part. Rapture is the lifting up part. So, the coming of Christ himself is parousia. Has anybody, anybody heard that word before? You all shake your head, no, I actually told you this about a year ago. I, I looked it up, I looked up the sermon, like I, I actually spent like literally 20 minutes discussing this with you. That's Okay. All right, so parousia. The word parousia, it's a a Greek word, and it means um, coming or arrival. Coming or arrival. Now, the 20 minutes I spent with you about a year ago was because there is a Latin word that means basically the same thing. Does anybody know what the Latin word for arrival is or appearance? (laughs) I was going to light the candles. Yes, the Latin word is Adventus, which we get the word Advent. It means appearance. Now, the church has taken a Latin word and a Greek word that mean the same thing, and we have applied them to Christmas and to the second coming. The first coming and the second coming. Do you see this? The first arrival, the second arrival. The first appearance, the second appearance. We've used the Latin word Adventus, to talk about the first appearance of Christ in the flesh, incarnation. And we've now taken the Greek word for appearance, parousia, and we've applied that as the second appearance or the second coming of Christ. The words are the same. They're just two different languages, Latin and Greek. But we've taken the two words and we've turned them into like churchy terms. So if you're in seminary and the, the professor sounds all fancy, we're going to talk about the parousia of Jesus Christ today. That's not fancy. He's just using a Greek word. It means the appearance. And in the church, it means the second appearance of Christ. So, newsflash, if you didn't know it, Jesus came to earth as a baby 2,000 years ago, and he's coming back. He's coming back. And when he comes back, there's a whole bunch of descriptions of what might happen. The word rapture is thrown around. Uh, The word eschatology sounds all fancy-dancy. But the the really the whole thing is Jesus is going to appear again. Appear. Parousia. Appear. That's the word. Whew! Was that a fun fact? Landon, are you with me? Was that super fun? Nope. Landon's like, I can't believe you called me out. Landon Avia. Okay, so Parousia. But here's the thing, there are so many Christians that think this passage is talking about the Prussia, but is it? Is, this, is Jesus talking to his disciples about his second coming? This is a difficult question. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I, I want you to, to, to think about the difficulty of this passage now. Because I believe that we need to understand exegetically what did, did Jesus' words mean to the original audience? Now think this through and this is really hard for us to do because we today, (coughs) we know the rest of the story, right? We know that Jesus was crucified on the cross, he was dead for three days, he came back alive, he walked around for 50 days doing crazy cool stuff, then he went up to to heaven and the disciples were standing there and then we know another 2,000 years has passed and Jesus hasn't come back yet. Okay, so all of that is like in our brain, right? But think about the disciples in this moment in this passage. You see how this is very difficult for us to do because we know all the other stuff. But for the disciples in this moment, what did they know? They knew that they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus. Do you think they knew what was going to happen? Oh, this gets a little strange when you start thinking about it from the disciples' perspective. Not only did they not know about the cross, they had, all they knew about the cross at that time was that that was how Romans killed criminals. So the only thing they knew about a cross is about what you know about an electric chair. That's what they knew about a cross. The cross didn't have any spiritual meaning for them. Think about that. We can hardly even get that out of our head, right? They had no idea that was going to happen. Well, that's not quite true. Jesus had told them that he was going to die and be raised from the dead. But what did they know? I mean, it, it's difficult to put yourself in the disciples' position in this story. And Jesus, he, he really tells them three separate sayings in this, in this section. He says, number one, Be ready for Jesus to return, I mean, and be ready like a servant waiting eagerly for his master to come home from a week-long wedding celebration. So you need to be ready. Number two, Jesus might return at any moment unexpectedly. But if you're you're sitting there listening to Jesus in the flesh, saying, you need to be ready for my return, you know what what I would have said? I would have said, "Uh, you haven't gone anywhere. You're right in front of me. Think about that. Think about what Jesus is saying. He's literally talking to his disciples in person. When I return, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Could you imagine Peter? like, Is he, is he, is he going to go somewhere? <laughs> like, like, like what's, he, what's he talking about? <laughs> the disciples would be like, I don't know what he's talking about. And then Jesus' third thing he says is, be a wise manager in my absence, because when I return, you're going to be responsible for what you were given. Now, it's fairly easy for us to look at these three lessons and see an obvious reference to Jesus's second coming at the end of the world, the parousia. The problem I see is that I am unsure what the original audience, the disciples, would have been thinking when Jesus said these things. And this is where I'm just like, that's weird. W- was Jesus really talking about his second coming? Or was he talking about something else? I, I don't know. Th- think, and think about it. I mean, Peter even says, is this for us or for the crowd? So that means that there was a, like, he wasn't sure who this message was for. And the crowd that was gathering to hear Jesus' teachings and see his miracles, they, weren't, they wouldn't have known that Jesus was going to be crucified. They were following him because he, like, said some amazing... His sermons were good and he did miracles. They wouldn't have known that Jesus was going to die and come back to life. See, we just assume all of that. Do you see the problem we have by coming to this text 2,000 years later? You've got to be careful when you read Scripture. not Not to overlook what the original audience would have heard. That's important when you read the Bible. Now... I do know this. We know this because we've been studying Luke. Jesus has already told his disciples something important. Look back at Luke chapter 9, verses 20 and 22. And this is Jesus, But what about you? Who do you say say I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And then the third day be raised to life. Now, Jesus has already said that to his disciples at some point before this. So, at least the disciples had the knowledge that Jesus was going to die and come back to life. But I'm thinking they didn't get it. I'm thinking that they were like, once again, you know, Jesus, I'm going to die and come back to life in three days. Can you see Peter? You're going to do what? Did, Did you hear that? Did you hear the same thing I heard? Yeah, I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't know what that means either. Okay, let's just act like we got it. Oh. Th- this is the disciples. How would they possibly know? So, we do know at least the disciples had been told by Jesus what was going to happen. But I'm not sure they understood it. Moreover, I'm, I'm seriously doubtful that the disciples had any idea that there was going to come a time in the future when Jesus would ascend to heaven and leave them on earth without their leader. There's no way the disciples would have thought that. Like, we just assume it. You see that? There's no way the disciples would have thought, someday Jesus is going to die, he's going to be dead for three days, he's going to come back to life, he's going to stand around for 50 days doing cool stuff, and then he's going to go up to heaven. I'm sure that's what's going to happen. And then, I'm pretty sure that Jesus is going to be gone for 2,000 years. I bet that's the way it's going to go down. Yeah. No way! No way! Did the disciples think that? No way! So, what does this mean? I mean, when, when, when Jesus says this to, to them, they've got to be like, I, 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 I'm not sure what's going on. There's no way the disciples, I, I think there's no possible way the disciples thought that the church was going to go forward without Jesus there in person. I don't think they ever would have saw that coming. We take it for granted. And they would, it didn't even, I don't think it even entered their mind. In fact, when when Jesus went up to heaven, do you remember the last question they asked Jesus in the book of Acts? Before he went to heaven, do you remember the last question of the disciples? The last thing they asked Jesus was, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Up to the moment Jesus ascended to heaven, they didn't understand what was going on. And Jesus is like, you know, um, I guess I'm just going to leave because I've told you everything and you didn't get it, so okay, I'll send the Holy Spirit, but you guys, I'm out of here. And then the disciples were literally looking up in the clouds when Jesus was gone. They were looking so long that God had to send an angel to say, okay guys, you need to You need to go. You need to go. Go. Oh, like he's not coming. Like he's not. He's not coming back. Like he's not coming back. Um. Let Let's Let's go to Jerusalem. (laughs) I mean, this is the disciples. They didn't know what was going on. That's amazing to me. It would have been mighty confusing. So what does this passage mean for us? Well, it's very difficult for us in a passage like this to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. I mean, it's hard to imagine being physically present with Jesus, isn't it? Because we haven't had that experience. Not with Jesus physically. I mean, can you imagine being physically with Jesus? Being convinced that he really was the anointed one of God and then, say, then have Jesus say these parables that he's going to be gone. And he's going to return. Well, return from where? And then waiting 2,000 years, nobody expected this. And yet, the fact that he has been gone this long certainly makes Jesus' words in this passage make sense to us. Well, I think that Jesus did know what he was talking about. And I think that he was telling his disciples to prepare for something that they couldn't even fathom. For their good and for ours. You know, this, these parables that Jesus said are paralleled. And this is one of the reasons why I can I, I personally believe that Jesus was talking about his second coming here. Even though the disciples never would have understood it. Two reasons, and I'll just say them quickly. The first is this. These same parables are paralleled in Matthew and Mark, the same stories. Now, they're in different settings, but the same stories. In the settings in Matthew and Mark, these parallels are said specifically when Jesus is talking about the end times. So in Matthew, it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's a section in Matthew chapters 24, 25, 26, I believe, where Jesus is specifically asked about the end times and these parables are in that section. In other words, these parables are in the part where Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen at the end. And then he talks about the the women, the virgins with the lamps. You remember that story? Very similar story to this. So we can be sure, I think, I believe, that Jesus is talking about the end times. And then also, this passage about a thief, the later writers of the New Testament, they pick up on this idea of a thief and it's always with with the idea of the end times. So look at these just real quick, four four scriptures. First Thessalonians five, one and two. Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Second Peter three ten. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The and Revelation three three. Remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. Revelation sixteen fifteen. Behold, I come like a thief. This idea of a thief in the night that is from the very mouth of Jesus in the the stuff we're reading today, the the, the early church saw that as a reference to Jesus' second coming. So even though the original disciples didn't realize it, I think, Jesus was talking about, here's what's going to happen when I come back. You are not going to expect my coming. Okay. I feel like we're getting into the weeds a little bit. I wanted to to try to help you understand, though, that the applications of exegesis and hermeneutics, of looking at the original audience, they still apply in a situation like this. But let's get back to the text. I want to focus on what Jesus really wants us to know. Here it is. I'm going to say it as clearly as I can, as simply as I can, about everything Jesus is saying here. He's saying, be ready, but then he's saying something very specific. Now, this this is simple. It is good, really good, to be ready for Jesus' return. And it is bad, really bad, not to be ready. So here we go. I'm going to go through this very quickly, but I want to show you how Jesus says this. So look at starting in verse 12, chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. Be dressed and ready for service. By the way, the King James, I like the King James translation better, better here. Uh, the King James translation is, gird up your loins. I <laughs> love Gird up your loins. Get ready. Yeah, you know what gird up your loins means. You don't play football without girding up your loins or it hurts. Okay? Because you've got to be ready. Gird up your loins. Get ready for action. Be prepared. And keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Immediately open the door. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. It is good, really good, to be ready. Now look closely at verse 37. Verse 37. It will be good. If you would like to highlight your Bible, I want you to highlight your Bible. Highlights, it will be good. For those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes, I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Listen to that again. Listen. It will be good. How good will it be for the servants Who are found ready when the master returns. It will be so good. It will be really good. How good? The master himself takes on the role of a servant and serves the servants. Pause for a dramatic effect. The master will serve the servants who are ready. We don't much think about that, do we? Jesus will serve those who are ready at his return. He will serve them a meal. Wow. That's how good it will be. God himself will serve you a meal if you are ready at his return. And by the way, that phrase, it is good, in Greek it's the same word as blessing. The word is blessing. You will be blessed if you are ready. God himself will bless you if you are ready. And then look at verse 38. It will be good. There you go. Highlight again. It will be good. It's the second time. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even if he comes in the second or third watch. The second or third watch in Judaism, the second watch is from midnight to 3 a.m., the third watch is from 3 a.m. to dawn. In other words, Jesus might not come back till the very end of the night. If you are ready, you will be blessed. God himself will serve you. God himself will serve you. And then look at 39 through 40. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. By the way, just a quick note. Anybody that says Jesus is coming back on this day or year, remember 2000, what was it, 2012? That movie was pretty good. But the Mayan calendar, really? Really, you're worried about the Mayan calendar. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. And if somebody tells you they know, run away from them. Because they are either crazy or demonically influenced. They do not know when Jesus is going to return. Now, verses 42-44. The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. There's the third one. Highlight it. It will be good. How good? Really good. How good? Look. The servant will be put in charge of all the possessions of the master. Did you you hear that? Can I ask you a question? How many possessions does God have? All of them. All of them. How good will it be to be ready when Jesus returns? Really good. How good? You are put in in charge of all of God's possessions. Now, if these were not the literal words of Jesus, you would think that I was speaking heresy, wouldn't you? What do you mean? We're put in charge of all of God's possessions. Those who are ready are put in charge of all of God's possessions. This should remind you of something. It should remind you of the the passage we just studied last week. Look at verse 1232. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to... Give you the kingdom. We just said this last week about generosity. You don't need to worry about being generous or worry about being provided for when you're generous, because when you're generous, God gives you the whole kingdom. The whole kingdom. All of God's possessions are available to you if you will be generous and ready. These are promises of God from the mouth of God Himself. I wish I could stop the sermon right there, because that sounds great. Isn't that so wonderful? (laughs) Oh boy. Sometimes when things sound really great, there's a flip side to the coin, huh? Yep. Because when you're not ready, it is bad. Really bad to not be ready. Verses 45 and 46. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and then begins to beat the men servants and maidservants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he is not aware of. This is the part that's a little tricky. Did you, did you read that? He will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. I'm letting that sink in. Do you know what it means to not be ready for Jesus' return? It means that. Prepare to be dismembered. Again, I am literally just reading the words of Jesus. That's what it means to not be ready for Christ's return dismemberment, and the dismemberment is the easy part. Look at the second part of that. You will be assigned a place with the unbelievers. Do you know what that means, to be assigned a place with the unbelievers? Do not be afraid of the one who can kill only your body. Be afraid of the one who can kill your body and send you to hell. There it is. There it is. This is what it means to not be ready for Jesus' return. Brendan, I'm picking on both the Adams boys today just because I feel like it. What does the word YOLO mean? Yeah, you can have a sucker. I'll give Landon a sucker today, too. Actually, sucker's all around for that role right there. What does YOLO mean, Brendan? You only live once. <laughs> Seems like that, that foolish manager, what did it say? He beats the men servants and the maidservants, and then he eats, drinks, and gets drunk. You know what that sounds to me like? YOLO. That is you only live once. Your generation, teenagers, they think that this is what you do to live a good and happy life. Just live your life like you only live once. Just go for it, man. Do you know what the end of that is? I'm not overstating the words of Jesus when I say the end of YOLO is dismemberment and hell. Did I get that wrong? Did I get that wrong? I don't like those hellfire and brimstone preachers. I'm just talking. I have literally just read the words of Jesus. Like, these are the words of Jesus. It is bad, really bad, to not be ready for Jesus' return. So, The last section. Verses 47 through 48. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. And everyone who has been given much will be, much will be demanded and from the one who has been trusted with much, much more will be asked. All right. That right there is why I didn't want to preach on this passage. So, I'm just going to tell you. I don't know what that means. (laughs) I wish I could tell you. I mean, when we talk about salvation in the church, we talk about it as you're either saved or you're not saved. Right? You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. And I believe that. But then that makes this passage really confusing to me. So we know that the the guy who beats the servants and the maidservants and eats and drinks and gets drunk, okay? I think we could probably say that that is someone who is a Christian leader who abuses his fellow Christians and lives a life of YOLO. You only live once. Someone maybe who claims to be a Christian but isn't ready for Christ's return. They're actually abusing fellow Christians. So I think that first part is definitely a warning to Christian leaders, especially pastors, don't beat your sheep. (laughs) Okay? So I'm hearing that loud and clear. When pastors beat their sheep and live their life YOLO, when Christian leaders, I might even say leaders who call themselves Christians that are political leaders, can I say that? When they beat their sheep, and they live their life YOLO style, dismemberment and hell are their final destination. Again, I'm just looking at the words of Jesus. But then what do we do with this? But the one who does not know... Well, let's go back to verse 47. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. So, of course, here's the question. We now have someone who is a disciple of Jesus, they know they should get ready, but they haven't gotten ready. They're going to be beaten with many blows. I don't know the answer to this, and I could not find the answer to this in my commentaries. Does being beaten with many blows mean you still get into heaven or not? I don't know. I don't know. So this is someone who knows that they should be living their life for Christ. And in the context of this passage, let's just use what Jesus talked about before. Someone whose treasure is is where their heart is in a bad way, right? A Christian who has not been generous. A Christian who has not trusted in Christ for their provision. A Christian who knows what they're supposed to do but doesn't do it. But maybe they're not beating other Christians up and maybe they're not living YOLO, but they're somehow not all the way in. Does that mean they're going to be punished but still make it in? But then there's another group. Look at the next verse, verse 48. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. Well, that means there's a group of people that don't know what they're supposed to do but what they're doing is not good. They still get beaten, but not as bad as the other ones. I debated whether I should even bring this up because I don't have the answer. Does anybody want to venture a guess? No, this isn't about guessing. What is Jesus getting at here? If I had time and I don't. So if, if this is perplexing you and if you are thinking this through, you're going to be perplexed right now because we are so used to thinking black and white, in or out. We're not used to thinking about like levels. Levels of reward? Well, there definitely are not levels of salvation, that's for sure. But are there, are there different levels of reward? Well, that's tricky too. This is tricky. So if this is going to bother you, call me. Let's talk it through. And I would have you study two passages. We're not going to look at these today because I don't have time. I guess if we were like an Amish church, I'd just launch into it. But then we wouldn't get home till like three. So here's the two passages. If you want to look this up and really have God like scramble your brain, okay? Romans chapter 2 verses 12 through 16. There's a a section in Romans chapter 2 where Paul addresses, what about Gentiles who never hear about Jesus? What happens to them? Take a look at that. It'll scramble your brain. And then the other passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. That's an interesting passage because the works of a Christian go through the purifying flames of Christ and some people's works are like gold, and they survive, and some peoples are like straw, and they don't. And it says, and those that are like straw, escape, but they're basically just by the skin of their chinny-chin-chin. Chin. So take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10-15, through 15, and then send me an email, or call me, and we'll talk this through together, okay? Because the, the, the possibilities of, of the interpretation of this passage are like... They're like everywhere. They're all over the place. So, let's end this by saying this. If we now pull away from the details and once again look at what Jesus is saying, the overarching thing Jesus is saying is this. Be ready. And now I want to add this last thing. And then we're done. You will be held to account For what God has given you. I'm not talking about salvation through works. You're not saved because you do good works. But I am saying. A part of being ready for Jesus' return. Is that you are using the resources God has given you. For his kingdom. And there will come an accounting of that. Do I understand how that's going to work? Nope. You know why I don't? Because it hasn't happened yet. And anybody that tells you they know, like this is what's going to happen at the end times. There's going to be this and this and this and this and this and it's going to happen here and here. They don't know either. Don't believe them because they don't know. All I can tell you is this. It's bad. Really bad If you are not ready for Jesus' return, it's good, really good, if you are ready. Be generous. Be ready. We will be held to account for what God has given us. And now just this last verse, the last thing Jesus says. Verse 48. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. You are responsible for what God has given you. Be generous, be ready. And it's really good when you are. <laughs> All of the possessions of God will be given you. Lord God, I hope that you take The weakness that is me in trying to explain your word, and I hope you turn it into something more than what I was able to make it into. God, I hope you will take this and use it. I know that when your word goes out, it never comes back void. We know that promise from Isaiah. Your word has gone out, and I... I hope that I have been faithful to your word. I pray that you would help us to understand. Lead us, Lord. May we be generous and ready and accountable so that we can receive your blessing. In Jesus' name.